Good morning, Fellowship Nashville. Welcome. It's good to see all of you here. My name is Mark, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And if you are um, new here at Fellowship Nashville, if you're a, a guest, we want to give you a warm welcome. Thank you for being here. Also, regular attenders and members, if you see someone around you that looks new, one of the things I really appreciate about this church is how hospitable we are. Um, so if you didn't catch them at the announcement break, catch them afterwards, welcome them. Um, but if you are new, I encourage you to take out your phone and text the number on the screen or scan the QR code there. Um, this is a way that we can follow up with you with more information about Fellowship Nashville and how you can get plugged in here. Um, as you know, we've been going through the, um, if you've been here, um, going through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mountain. Early on, we had a call to artists. If you were inspired to create art based on this sermon series, we asked you to go ahead and do that. If you answered that call and have something that um, you've been creating, we want you to reach out to Ryan this week. Um, and we'd, in coming weeks, we'd like to start displaying some of that artwork in some form or fashion. So reach out to uh, Ryan um, Dowdy if you have... Um, created something along those lines. Speaking of our sermon series wrapping up soon, next week will be the final message in our Sermon on the Mount series. And as is our custom here at Fellowship Nashville, we like to turn the microphone over to you. And so uh, be thinking this week about what you've learned, how God has encouraged you, how God has challenged you through this sermon series. And we invite you to come with some thoughts ready to share next week. We'll put a couple microphones up, one right over here, one right over here. I'm going to have a shortened mini-sermon next week. And for the last 15 minutes or so of the service, we're going to be inviting you to share how God has used the Sermon on the Mount in your life. We have a lot of events coming up. Um, and you can find all of those on our website, uh, fellowshipnashville.com church forward slash events. You can also scan the QR code behind me to, to find those. One of those is a young professionals gathering right here on Tuesday night. So if you're young and professional or just pretending to be young or professional, we invite you to um, come gather here at 630 on Tuesday night. We'll share a meal uh, together and then dive into a Bible study. If you came prepared to give, um, you can always do so at the box in the, the back and, or in the lobby on the back counter there between the coffee, or you can give online, fellowshipnashville.church slash give. Let me lead us in prayer, um, asking God to bless our gifts and our offerings um, and use them for the furtherance of gospel in our city and around the world, and also pray for Ryan as he comes to teach um, this message this morning. Father, thank you. We're grateful for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, um, we know that you have blessed us to be a blessing. And so as we give, we ask that you would help us to do so with cheerful hearts. Hearts overflowing with generosity because of the abundant generosity we've already been given in Christ. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ and given us an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So, Father, loosen our grip on the stuff of this earth and help us to be generous and willing to share. Father, we pray for Ryan this morning as he comes to teach your word. We ask that you to open our hearts to what the Spirit would have to teach us through your word this morning. And, Father, um, thank you that we can gather freely to worship you, to open your word, we don't take that for granted. 
So thank you, Lord. Amen. It is uh, great to be with you. If this is your first time here, let me introduce myself. My name is Ryan, and I get the honor and privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And guys, I don't know if you know it or not, but it's time. You know, Halloween's past, Thanksgiving is yet to come, and one of the greatest questions that rages on in Western civilization is right now. And it typically is expressed in a musical refrain that goes something like this. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing that I need. I don't care about the stockings underneath the Christmas tree. I just want you for my own more than you could ever know. This I know is true. All I want for Christmas is you. Right. And the age old question is whether or not you start playing Christmas music at Halloween or at Thanksgiving. Now, uh, let, let's talk a little bit about this debate, because I want to I speak to those of you who believe that Christmas music should only be played after Thanksgiving. I want to encourage you, that's okay. God loves Grinches too. Because in my mind, Christmas music should be played as soon as Halloween passes. I mean, there's just something so beautiful about the power of this. In fact, I'm just curious by show of hands, how many people would join with me? Christmas music starts after Halloween. Okay, okay. Well, wherever you land on the debate, here's the thing. Whether you like it or not, every year, once Halloween passes, you have to make a choice. That is, of course, unless you go to Target where the choice has been made for you since Labor Day. But outside of that, we'll all be called upon to make a choice. And even the decision to not make a choice is itself making a choice. And in much the same way, as we come to this passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at today, Jesus will take everything that he's been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount and bring it back in a laser-like focus. He will pinpoint our heart and our desires back to a central reality that is so incredibly important for us today. And it's here that I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 13 to 23 together. The words will also be up here on the screen if you'd like to follow along. And here's what Jesus tells us. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it or by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, in many ways, these words have been called some of the scariest verses uh, in the whole, whole of scripture. And I think with good reason. 
And as we continue on in this sermon series, in the Sermon on the Mount, as we near its end, we are brought back again to the very place in which we started. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, before the beginning of this sermon, Jesus, we're told, goes throughout all the regions announcing, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Metanoia, this changing of one's mind, radically redefine reality. Because something has happened that is so central and fundamental that is, has changed everything about reality as we know it. All throughout the sermon, Jesus has been describing for us this reality of the kingdom and what it looks like to live it, to see it, to follow it in every dimension of our life. And now as we come into this last section, Jesus is going to take everything he has said and bring it back with laser-like focus to a central fact. We've got to make a choice. We've got to make a choice. And it's why Jesus is going to remind us what I want to suggest to you is the key idea of our message today. That entering the kingdom will call for a radical response of total abandon and personal trust. One doesn't just drift into the kingdom, but it calls for a thoughtful and intentional response to the grace of God that he's already poured out to us. And when we find this challenge, we find ourselves invited into something that is so beautiful and so powerful that it changes every dimension of our life. And to begin with, Jesus uses an image of two paths and two gates to remind us of this fact, that entering the kingdom is going to call for total abandon. Again, we look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 15. And he says there, enter by the narrow gate, for the, for the, way, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter into it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You know, if you look at the Greek here, the operative term that describes what we're invited to in this section is this invitation to enter into. Uh, it's the Greek word, ace erkomai. It carries with it this sense of coming into something. And, and that idea of entering, I think, is so incredibly significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, it reminds us that what we enter into isn't something that we manufacture. It's not something that we somehow produce or make that which we enter into, but rather it is a willing and thoughtful decision to step across the line into what has already been prepared for us. You know, as I was considering this idea of what it looks like to enter into this week, I realized that we can really have a tendency to fall into two extremes as we think about what this looks like. The first is, uh, you know, we emphasize relationship without responsibility. You know, we say, well, well, man, you know, I, I know there's grace, and so how I live doesn't matter. Jesus is, Jesus is good, and, and so, you know, I know that if I just go to church and I go through the right religious steps, then everything I've done wrong is going to be dismissed, and there's no responsibility for my action. Or on the other extreme, we emphasize responsibility uh, Okay, that's a redundant slide. We emphasize <laughs> responsibility without relationship. And uh, what I mean by that is that what we have a tendency to do is we take it on ourselves as if it's all about us, as if it's all about what we do, if it's all about our works. This was the sin of the Pharisees who thought that by simply being a good moral person and following the right religious code, a relationship with God never really mattered. 
And here's what Jesus is going to remind us of in this text. The call to enter in is a call to both. To recognize that the only way that we enter into this life is by that life-giving relationship with him. But entering into that life-giving relationship will also call for an intentional and thoughtful choice to pursue the life of the kingdom. To give you an example of what that looks like, what Jesus does is he gives us two very powerful images. He talks, first of all, of uh, a narrow gate. Uh, Out of curiosity, has anybody here ever had the chance to go to Israel or seen pictures of Israel? It's it's powerful as you travel around the, the wall of the city of Jerusalem because you'll find a number of gates that were the entry points into the city. And there's a good deal of debate among scholars as to what exactly this narrow gate refers to. As I've looked at the different options, what I've come to believe is it's a reference to what was known as the Sheep Gate. It was a gate that was so narrow and so small that in order to get through it, literally, you had to take off everything. You couldn't travel with these big caravans. You couldn't take your moving van and drive right through it. But it required a thoughtful and intentional decision to abandon everything and then take it through piece by piece through that gate. What Jesus is saying here, I believe, is that many try to travel through a broad gate. Many try to get in holding on to all kinds of things in God at the same time, only to realize that you simply can't do it. The call of the kingdom is a call to abandon and to surrender. And Jesus only heightens that with the second image that he uses when he talks about a way, a road. He says that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Many. Many. This is the default of the human condition. The attempt to try and combine uh, what is the worship of the one true God with all the other things that I want to hold on to at the same time. It's what C.S. Lewis once warned is the danger of Christianity and. That as soon as we add something else, else to Christ, then the worship of Christ ceases to be that very thing. In order to worship God, it calls for an abandon of every part of who we are and a call to follow in single-minded obedience. Because he tells us that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. You know, this week as I was sitting in those verses, I was quickly reminded of these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, where he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In fact, in Luke's parallel passage of this section in Matthew, it says, how often are we supposed to take up that cross? Daily. Daily. Let him die to himself daily. Deny himself daily. Unload the camels. Unload the stuff so that we come in vulnerability and honesty and surrender before the God of the universe. You've heard me say this before, but this week as I sat again in this verse, I was haunted by a question. When was the last time that the presence of Jesus interrupted my day? Think about that for a second. When was the last time that the reality and the existence of the kingdom caused me to live differently because I recognized that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And oftentimes, as I look at my life, I realize it's far less often than what I desire it to be. You see, the point I think Jesus is making here is that the presence of the narrow gate and the narrow road remind us that we will be called to thoughtfully and intentionally make a choice to surrender to God. You know, as I look at different people throughout church history who have spoken of this reality, there are probably few voices that I think more powerfully encapsulate the power of what this kind of life looks like uh, than a man who lived uh, in World War II, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote of what he calls costly grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And I love this quote. He says that costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift of which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such costly grace is costly because it causes us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. This, this beautiful tension of the fact that the only way any of us get into this kingdom is because of the way that's been prepared for us by Christ. It is never because of our works or our external actions. And yet, at the same time, entering into the kingdom calls for a thoughtful, intentional decision to apprentice the way of Jesus in every area of our life. And what Bonhoeffer is going to say is that Uh, The call to follow Jesus without the call to discipleship is not the call to follow Jesus. You know, the reality is, even in churches today, all across our country, people gather in the name of Jesus, and they know a lot about Jesus. They know the right answers, but they don't know him. Or perhaps they reason, look, I can go to church once a week and live however I want the other six days, and it really doesn't matter. What Jesus is going to warn us of here is the call that the life of the kingdom isn't something that we just drift into. The call of the kingdom isn't something that just happens, but it calls for a thoughtful and intentional and purposeful choice to set everything else to the side to follow him and him alone. And that's not something we can do on our own. It is the result of the presence of God within us. It is a fruit of the life that has been accomplished because of his rich grace and mercy. But you know what? Jesus is also going to warn us there are going to be those on the path who will say, yeah, come on, there's easier ways. There's shortcuts. I mean, there's a Diet Coke to all of this. And Jesus is going to remind us, no, Entering the kingdom is going to call for vigilance. Again, listen to the words that he says in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And he goes on to use this image of plants and trees. And he's like, look, can a a tree that's healthy produce or bad fruit? Or could a tree that is unhealthy produce good fruit? No, that's foolish. The fruit that follows will follow the condition of the tree. And what he does here is I believe he gives us three characteristics, three tools that we can use for the identification of false teachers. And real quickly, we'll go through these. Number one, 
I believe he warns us that false teachers arise from within the church. The reality is there are those that will come up even among the people of God. I mean, these are, as we're told, wolves in sheep's clothing. On the outside, it looks as if they're doing everything right. On the outside, everything looks good. But the reality is the intention and the purpose of their teaching is not for the good and the benefit of the body of Christ. In fact, uh, we learn a little bit more about uh, who they are when we're told that they are ravenous wolves. In fact, this word ravenous in the Greek is particularly interesting because it carries with it the idea of plundering. You know, uh, just uh, the other day, the boys and I were re-watching the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, and we saw this picture of, you know, these people that would come into these villages, they would plunder a village, they would take everything for themselves and run off and sail across the seas. In much the same way, what Jesus is saying here is that these false teachers do so not to build up the body of Christ, not to lead them in the truth, but for their own personal gain. And then lastly, they teach false truths. I hope one of the things that happens as you look at God's word, as you listen to any teaching, either from this pulpit or anywhere on the internet or a podcast, the standard by which you judge what you hear is not the charisma of the speaker, not how it makes you feel, but what God has already said in his word. One of the great gifts of the body of Christ is the fact that God has given us his spirit to interpret his word and that as we come together, as we seek him, I believe he leads us in truth. And one of the most important and significant things that we can do is to test what we hear against the truth of God's word. You know, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, there is a powerful picture there that I think is just so stunning. God is warning the nation of Israel about false teachers that are arriving within, arising within their midst, and he tells them that if they, if they say something and it doesn't come to pass, do you know what you're supposed to do? Stone them. Um, we, don't, we don't so much do that anymore. Um, but when that happens... God says, even if what they say comes to pass, and it is in contradiction with what he said in his law, he's testing to see whether or not we trust him. Whether or not we trust the sufficiency of his word to follow and serve in every way. And here's what I want to suggest to you. If I had to boil everything that I think Jesus is saying here into a simple truth about these false teachers, it's this. You will know false teachers by the path they point you towards. If a false teacher comes to you and they say, hey, yeah, 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 this, uh, this worship Jesus, yeah, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But let me tell you, um, that was an outdated historical statement, and you aren't necessarily bound to follow that. Um, that should be a warning, because it stands in contradiction to God's word. On the other hand, if somebody comes to you and they say, look, yes, we are saved because of what Jesus did, but it's also about your own religious performance apart from grace. Be on the alert. But it is in that beautiful space where both the reality of the grace of God and the call to cooperate, to respond with that mercy and grace in our life, that we begin to find the pathway and the doorway into kingdom life. And it's why then I want to point you to a third invitation um, that Jesus gives us. 
the reminder that entering the kingdom will call for a deepening relationship with Jesus. Now, before I go on, again, I want to acknowledge that this section that's about to follow has been named as some of the most frightening in all of Scripture. And I think with good reason. And at the same time, I am convinced that fear, shame, and condemnation are never the voice of the kingdom. Yet what I think these verses become an invitation to do is for a sober self-examination, a sober willingness to look at our life in light of the gospel, a, a powerful invitation to align our lives with what God has already revealed about this beautiful thing that he calls the kingdom of heaven. And so with that in mind, let's dive into these verses. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Again, I want to go back to those two extremes of entering, and this time with the right slides. That um, there really are these two extremes that we can fall into. The first, as we've saw, is to emphasize relationship without responsibility. And, and that really speaks to those who are traveling on the Broadway, those who say, hey, I've, it, it doesn't matter what I do, but rather are invited to see that the cost to follow Jesus is a costly grace. It is a call to surrender my heart and life in obedience and surrender to him. But now Jesus is going to turn on the other hand to those who much like the modern day Pharisees of Jesus's day believed that it was all about doing all the right things. It was all about knowing all the right things and all the while missed the centrality of a relationship with Jesus. And he's going to remind them that if if our obedience, if our knowledge is ever detached from a relationship with Jesus, then it becomes little more than a religious moralism. It becomes little more than simply jumping through all the right hoops as if somehow that obligated God to draw us into this kingdom life. And it's why then Jesus takes square aim as he continues in this section. He says, on that day that many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In so many ways, these who are coming before Jesus have so many things going for them. Number one, they've got a pretty decent theology. They know who Jesus is. They recognize him as Lord. At the same time, it seems as if they're doing a lot of really good stuff. They're prophesying in his name. And they're casting out demons in his name. They're doing many mighty works in his name. I mean, it, it, it seems odd that what happens next seems to be the description of Jesus. That, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In fact, as you look at these verses, the one description that seems to describe those who truly enter into the kingdom of heaven comes just a few verses prior. When Jesus says in verse 21, but it is the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So I think here's the logical question. What does it mean to do the will 
of the Father. You know, as I wrestled through that question this week, I found myself again uh, in these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. For you know the instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I think in this verse, there's a beautiful picture of walking in the tension of what we're talking about. He's saying, you know the instructions that we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He's reminding us that this life that you're invited into the kingdom, first and foremost, it is not about your religious performance. It is not about your action. It's not about simply jumping through all the right hoops. But it is one that has been accomplished through the sovereign work of Jesus Christ as he laid down his life for us on the cross. As he breathes his final words, he declares, it is finished. The price is fully paid. The price has been fully satisfied. But you know what? God loves us enough to not just wipe the slate clean. He's making us into a new creation. And it's why he goes on to say, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your continuing transformation. This is the will of God, that you walk a path of discipleship and surrender, and apprenticing the way of Jesus in every area and dimension of your life. And particularly in 1 Thessalonians, taking view of how we hold our body and our sexuality, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You'll notice on this slide and in this verse, these two sections that have been highlighted and underlined. Number one, the recognition that what has been accomplished has been done solely by Christ. And secondly, the reminder that it is a call to radically reorient every area of our life around the reality of the kingdom. You know, as I looked at this verse, I thought about these repeated refrains that we find throughout the scriptures. These curious phrases that we find things like in uh, 2 Peter 1, that you are called to make your calling and election sure. You ever thought about that for a second? What an odd phrase. I mean, if God is the one who has called and elected us, to what degree are we called to make it sure? Or, or consider on the other extreme, other passages that we find that tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There is on one hand this recognition that Jesus has done it all. It's all because of what Jesus has accomplished. And at the same time, entering into, walking into, surrendering to the fullness of that life is going to call for daily, thoughtful, intentional, and strategic choices to enter into the life of the kingdom. Maybe to put it at the most basic level, I would simply say this, that entering the kingdom will call for total surrender and personal trust. Entering into the life of the kingdom will call for us to surrender every part of our life, not first and foremost because of our act of surrendering, not first and foremost because of what we've accomplished, but because of the rich mercy, grace, and compassion of God. Because next to the kingdom, nothing compares of value and significance. And so we thoughtfully and intentionally and purposefully risk it all because we know what he's worth. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 13. You're going to find some images there, some parables of the kingdom. 
And it's there that we are reminded that this reality of the kingdom is like a pearl of great price, one of which a man sells everything that he owns in order to get it. Or it's like a rich man who finds a treasure in a field and he goes out and he joyfully sells everything that he has to buy that one field because he knows the treasure that is within it. In the same way, entering the life of the kingdom will radically call for us to surrender every other allegiance, every other commitment, every other love, to walk again in a singular focus and love of God. You know, what I find so stunning in verse 23 is just the mismatch of communication that happens in that moment. Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, here's a group of people that were doing all the right things. Here's a group of people that knew all the right things. And yet they came face to face with this reality that knowing all the right things and doing all the right things can never substitute for actually being in a relationship with Jesus. Notice what Jesus says. It's not that he didn't know their works. It's not that he didn't know what they knew. But here were a group of people who found the words of Jesus important enough to hear, but not important enough to actually act on. Not enough to invite them into a radical redefinition, re-reality, to submerse every part of their life under the beautiful reality of his grace. And though they had done much, they missed the most important thing which was simply resting in the beauty and the power of a relationship with Jesus. It is, you see, our tendency is, is we want either or. You know, we want one path or the other. We want, you know, on one hand, what we want is, uh, we want to say that, well, because Jesus did it all, I have no responsibility. Or I have, because God has already chosen, I have no responsibility. Or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just be in this relationship. And if I have this relationship, then I don't have to follow God with discipleship. But in so many ways and in so many places in scripture, we are reminded that it is both. It is the reality that we are both saved by grace alone. And the reality that it is by grace alone calls us to abandon everything we have, not to earn it, but as a response. Probably one of the best statements that I've ever found that strikes the balance between these words comes uh, from a man that has uh, really kind of guided me in his work, a man by the name of Dallas Willard. And he gives us this powerful statement that the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. That the gospel is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And as we, as we come to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, as we come into these final sections, we will find a powerful invitation to radically reorient our lives around the truth of who Jesus is and this beautiful mystery that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does that look like? You know, this week as I asked that question, I found myself asking two questions of my own heart that I would pose to you today. The first of them is this. Where do Jesus' warnings invite me to surrender? 
Again, I go back to the image of that narrow gate. Maybe you would recognize that in the pursuit of following Jesus, there are many things that you are carrying, some of which stand in opposition or even hold you back in your relationship with Jesus. And it could be any number of things. It could be a sin. It could be your own dependence on your own religious performance. It could be uh, just some good thing that has taken an inordinate love in your heart. And today you hear and sense the call of Jesus to set those things to the side. That you may walk in the fullness and the freedom of this mystery that he calls the kingdom of heaven. And if that's you today, would you take that step? Are you ready to set those things to the side to say, I want the kingdom more. I want Jesus more than these things that I hold on to. More particularly, maybe you're here today and you would recognize you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you've been around the church for a while. Maybe you know the right answers. Maybe you would even say, look, I'm doing good things for Jesus. But I've never actually known Jesus. And today I sense that call to surrender my life to him. If that's you, a few of us are going to be available after service uh, over here to my left, and we would love to just have the opportunity to pray with you um, as you make that decision to follow him. But secondly, I think it also becomes a powerful invitation for us to wrestle with the second question, which is where do Jesus's warnings invite me to trust? Perhaps you're here today and you would recognize that following Jesus has become more about doing the right thing than it is about sitting before the one who alone is righteous. It's become more about jumping through all the right hoops. It's become more about what you do and what you accomplish than the freedom and the joy of what's been done for you. And today... You sense him inviting you to come back to the why behind the what. To come back to the purpose and the significance and the meaning behind the good things that you're doing. That at the end of the day, it doesn't matter a hill of beans what any of us do if it is divorced from a relationship with Jesus. And for each of us, the call today is to return again to this beautiful mystery to come again in humble trust, not of what we will accomplish, but of what God has accomplished for us. Friends, this week I have been so taken by how black and white these words of Jesus really are. You know, in my, in my personality, a lot of times I want to find the third way. I think Jesus is very clear that there isn't a third way here. Either we pursue the life of the kingdom or we don't. And the call of Jesus is to recognize that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The call of Jesus is to recognize that something so beautiful, so amazing, so fundamental has changed reality as we know it. And it calls for the surrender and the abandon of every part 
of who we are. And so today, may we hear that call. You know, maybe Mariah had it right. What if all we want for Christmas is him? All I want in this life is you. Today, may he guide us, may he lead us, may he transform our hearts till we know him and him alone. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up and as they do, I wanna put those two questions back up on the screen. I'm gonna just invite you to do some business with Jesus. Maybe as I've been sharing today, something's been stirring in your heart. Jesus inviting you either into a place of surrender or trust. Maybe both. Maybe recognizing that the grace and the call of the gospel is a call to costly grace and it is grace nonetheless. It is grace that is accomplished because of what he has done for us. Today, what's Jesus inviting you into? Where's he drawing you towards kingdom life? I'm gonna just take a couple seconds and ask him to search our hearts and I'll pray to close.